We are in Acts chapter 16 today. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you and open it to Acts 16. Last week, we started into Acts 16 and and mentioned as we transitioned from 15 to 16 and we're starting to look at the second missionary journey of, of Paul That this time, because of a disagreement between Barnabas over what they were to do with Mark, Mark was one that went with them initially on the first journey, and then deserted them partway through. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them the second time, to restore him, to bring him back along. But Paul, as we mentioned last week, focused on the mission that was ahead, felt that he would be a problem with that, said that they should leave him behind. The division caused a split between two godly men. And we talked about that last time. Certainly not pleasing to God that, that instead of unity, which is God's heart and desire for His church, there was, there was division here. But God even used that to form two teams now that have been sent out. Barnabas taking Mark and going back to Cyprus, back the original route that they took the first time. And now we're going to follow as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul, as he now sets out, kind of backtracking, with Silas. And we talked last time about how they, he, they picked up this young man named Timothy. And as they continue on now past the churches that they had visited the first time and now into new territory, they were heading through and Paul's initial desire was to go south into Asia Minor, down towards Ephesus. But it tells us that the Holy Spirit forbid them to go. Then desiring to go up north towards Bithynia. It tells us that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go up that direction. So Paul, seeking the Lord, saying, where, where is it that you would like us to go? He saw a vision. And it tells us that they saw a man from Macedonia saying, come and see us and help us. So they set out then towards Macedonia, ending up in Philippi. And that's where we were tying up, finishing up last time. They got to Philippi. And normally, as Paul's Custom, when he would get to a town, he'd go to the synagogue. But Philippi didn't have a synagogue. They didn't have the 10 Jewish men that lived there that was needed to start a synagogue. So they went down then by the river where it was custom then for those to meet and to pray. And they found a group of women, including a woman named Lydia. And it tells us that as Paul, they were praying together, Paul shared the gospel with them. It tells us in verse 14, Acts 16, that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel. The Lord opened her heart, and she responded. She invited Jesus to come into her life, to be her Lord and her Savior. And then it tells us that her household did the same. And then they were all baptized. tells us then that she opened up her home to Paul and Silas, Timothy, and we know now that Luke has joined them. And this is the birth, the beginning of the church in Philippi. And we pick up now our study this morning where we left off last week, verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. It says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out 
at that very moment. Here we see as they were continuing on, the church starting there, growing there, they would continually, regularly, daily go down to this place of prayer. And isn't it interesting that as they're heading down to this place of prayer, the enemy will come against them. We see here we're introduced to this, this demon-possessed young, young woman who comes against them. And I just stop there for a moment because, guys, isn't that the case often? When we desire to perhaps go to a prayer meeting, or I know we just had the men's retreat, and many guys will share testimony to the fact that they were being met continually with obstacles on their way to get up there. And when coming together, I don't know how many of you this morning, but no doubt a few of you had to get through some obstacles to even get here today, because the enemy didn't want you here today. And you know, I think it's interesting when we look at this and understand something The reason why this is happening, it tells us they're on their way to pray and the enemy comes. The enemy understands and knows the power of prayer. The enemy knows that God is moved by the prayers of his people and things happen when his people get together and pray. So the enemy is going to do whatever he can to stop that from taking place. The enemy believes in the power of prayer. And church... Might I say that I believe at times he believes in the power of prayer more than we do. Because if we believed it as much as he did, nothing would stop us from praying all the time. If we completely embraced the truth that God is moved by our prayers and desires to hear our prayer, guys, we would be obedient to the word that says continually pray. I want to challenge you in this. As it's challenged me, we need to be praying more. We need to be praying more individually. We need to be praying more corporately. Husbands, wives, any of you married here today, pray with your spouse every day. Parents, pray with your children. Get together in groups and pray together. I don't care what the enemy tries to do. The more you're attacked, the more you need to know you got to get together and pray. And by the way, if you would, just put this on your little prayer list for the next couple of days. Would you pray for for the pastors and elders here at the church? We're leaving after second service today, and we're going to go away for, for a couple of days and just pray together and seek the Lord together about... The, the direction for the church and what God wants to do. And we just want to hear from God together as pastors and elders. And the enemy's not going to want that. So would you pray for us as we do that? But understand that the enemy is going to do whatever he can. Philippi, as I mentioned, was at this point, there was less than 10 Jewish men in this entire city. The enemy's saying, this is my turf. And now... Paul comes with the gospel and he starts sharing it and the church is birthed here in Philippi and it's beginning to grow. And he, he doesn't like that. We're introduced here to this slave girl. She has human masters who take advantage of her for their own personal great financial gain. But the, the fact that she's a slave to human masters pales to the fact that she's a slave to demonic masters. It tells us that she has this spirit of divination who 
who allows her to quote-unquote fortune-tell, predict the future, if you would. I looked it up just out of curiosity because I figured it was a big number, but I had no idea how big. On average, annually, in the United States of America, people spend in excess of $2 billion on psychics. $2 billion on psychics and fortune-telling and having your palms read, having the stars read, having the cards, excess of $2 billion. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of statistics, but I'm going to net one down for you. The average income of those who spend money on psychics compared to how much they spend annually, they spend in excess of 10% of their gross income on psychics. On giving money to somebody who can't possibly tell them what God's desire is for their life. Why? Because it's demonic. Understand this. Any type of quote-unquote fortune-telling, including the horoscope in the newspaper, is demonic in origin. And you believers here today, if you read your horoscope this morning... Make today the last day you ever do that. Repent of that and turn from it. We have no business doing that. None at all. Guys, if you want to know what the future holds, get to know the one who holds the future. <laughs> that's, that's the simple truth of it all. Guys, we ha can have nothing to do with that. Nothing. There is no such, all of the, it, it, like I said, it's all demonic. Deuteronomy says any form, witchcraft, divination, all of that says detestable to God. Any form of it. There is no such thing as white magic or a good witch, okay? There's no such thing. The enemy wants us to think, demonic forces want us to think that that stuff is all innocent. That that stuff is, is all harmless. And I emphasize that, guys, because in a couple of weeks, the, our country is going to celebrate Halloween. And I'm not, I'm not going to get all legalistic and everything like that. But guys, this whole thing, again, about portraying witches and vampires and all of this stuff is just harmless child's play. It's not. It's not. We cannot just open up, we can't open up the door, even a crack for that type of thing. I mean, this girl here, she didn't set out one day to say, you know what, today I just want to go get demon-possessed. But she opened up a door somewhere along the line. And by the way, if you're a born-again believer here today, you are a Christian here today, you cannot be possessed. The Holy Spirit is in you, and he doesn't share his turf with any demonic forces, so... You, are, you cannot be possessed, but you have no business dabbling in anything that's demonic, period. But if you're here today and you are not a born-again believer, Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you're on your own in this, in this spiritual battle. And I hope that before you leave this morning, you change that, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But we see that that this, this girl, filled with a demonic spirit, coming against them, 
And it tells us that at a point, after a few days, Paul gets to the point, he's, I've had enough. He's annoyed to the point where he turns. But notice, it says he turns to the girl, but he addresses the demonic spirit. He's not annoyed with the girl. He's annoyed with the demon inside of her. He's annoyed with what is controlling her. He sees beyond the, the flesh and blood to the real enemy within. And I make a point of that again because in the, what, what we're living in, what we're facing, the, the battles that are going on around us, the Bible is clear. It is not against flesh and blood. We fight against demonic forces. We need to know who our enemy is. And even more so now. I mean, I just, it just gets crazier and crazier, doesn't it? The environment, the political environment that is going on, all it is is personal attacks, one after another, one up and everything. And it doesn't just go with the candidates. It goes with all of their supporters, and it goes all the way on down. Everybody's trying to, and it's all personal attacks. And we, we see here this, this, this demonic spirit within our guys. The enemy doesn't fight fair, so neither should we. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So why would we use their weapons? We have better weapons. The greatest weapon that we have against all of that garbage is love. Jesus said, they're going to know you belong to me because of your love. Peter tells us in his, in his letter, don't fight evil with evil or insult for insult. That's what they do. And look what happens. He said, instead, give them a blessing. What? Yeah. Blow them away. We're called for this purpose. Peter said, we've, we're called for this. When we have an enemy there, we're to pray for that person, understanding that there's something behind it that needs to be defeated in their life. We're to, good, to do good for them. Guys, the goal is not to win an argument. It's to save a soul. We see, I love this, Paul turns and he addresses the spirit in the name of Jesus and says it came out at that very moment. That girl was free. Bam. And I would love to tell you that the whole city erupted in praise because of the deliverance of this young girl. But, verse 19, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. A picture right there of the world. When the world is done with you, it will spit you out and throw you to the side. That's what they're, they've gotten everything they wanted out of her. Now they push her aside. Now they're going after Paul and Silas. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. 
And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here we see that instead of saying, Paul, thank you, and, and glorifying God because this girl's delivered, look what happens. They're taken into the public square. They are falsely accused. They are publicly humiliated. They are stripped of their clothing and beaten with rods. And the wording that's described here, literally tearing the flesh off their back with sticks, then taken to prison and handed over, saying to the guard, the prison guard, don't let him get out. It says to, he took him to the inner prison. Now, to you and I, that sounds, it doesn't sound like anything all that horribly bad. Understand, the inner prison in Philippi and Roman prison at that time was the dark dungeon down, down below where all the sewage fed. And it says that they were placed in stocks. So they're physically beaten in the most miserable place that they could possibly be in. I can't imagine being in a more a more horrible position and situation. Why? Because they were obedient. They went where God told them to go. They did what God told them to do. Remember, Paul initially wanted to go to Ephesus. The Holy Spirit said no. Then to Bithynia. Jesus said no. Where do you want us to go? Macedonia, Philippi. End up in Philippi preaching Jesus. This is where it lands them. They're here because they're obedient. They're here in this situation because they follow Jesus. Because they're proclaiming Jesus. I find it interesting. It kind of jumped out at me as I read this this week. Notice what they said when they brought him in front of the magistrates. They said, they're telling us to do things that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe. And that made me pause. Thinking, man, just think of the things now that so many people are saying that's not lawful for us to observe. You Christians, you bring your Bibles to work, not if you're a public school teacher. That's not lawful for us to observe. I read this week about a bus driver. I can't remember where it was, but a bus driver, public school bus driver who listened up in front. He had a little radio, listened to Christian music. It was told to him, that's not lawful for you to do. You cannot do that anymore. Listen to Christian music while you drive the bus. Now, granted, that is nowhere near the persecution that we're talking about with Paul and Silas and that other Christians, brothers and sisters of ours around the world are facing today, but it still is persecution. It still is things that are brought against us because of who we follow, because we belong to Jesus. But Jesus told us it was going to be like that, right? I mean, he said, you'll suffer all kinds of persecution because of me. He, said, he, he told us, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. We're not of this world. Jesus said in John 15, I chose you out of this world, and because of that, the world's going to hate you. He says in John 3, everyone who does evil hates the light. Why? Because of fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. He tells us why it's going to happen. He told us that it's going to happen. My guess, my question is, when it happens to you, when it happens to me, What's our response? What's our, what's our attitude towards it? Is it something that we just look at that we need to endure and just get through? Or should it be as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4? Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, not enduring. Keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, that does not mean if you're, you're, if you're reviled for going out and picking a fight. If, you, if you're reviled for being a knucklehead, this doesn't apply. But if you stand up for Jesus, if you stand up for the truth, and you are reviled for that, guys, it tells us we're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, again, just as a reminder where they are, they're in the deepest, darkest prison. They're beaten, bruised, bloodied, And it tells us, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, taken into the public square, falsely accused, publicly humiliated, stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, fastened in stocks in the deepest, darkest prison. What are they doing? First of all, what are they not doing? They're not complaining. They're not crying. They're not fighting or disputing with one another. Silas isn't saying, well, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into. (laughs) They're praying and they're praising. They're praying, and they're praising. First, they're praying. They're lifting their requests to God. They're raising their petitions to Almighty God. Now, it doesn't tell us what their prayers were, but we can piece some things together. we We can, first of all, rule out what their prayers were not. First of all, we know that they weren't praying, God, get us out of here. This is horrible. This is, un, this is unbearable. Get us out of here. How do we know that's not their prayer? Because when God answers with an earthquake and the doors are thrown open and the shackles fall off, they don't say, amen, brother, and out, out the door they go. They don't. They stay. So we know they weren't praying for that. We know they weren't praying, God, avenge us for this injustice. How do we know that? Because the, the jailer was about ready to kill himself and Paul didn't say, amen, Lord. He said, stop. So we know that that what they weren't praying. What were they praying? 
Well, again, we don't know for sure, but again, if you read through Paul's epistles and you, you get to know the heart of Paul, he understood something, guys, that we all need to understand. We all need to get this. I believe their prayer was something along the lines of, God, you brought us here. You have us here, and it must be for a reason, because you don't just do stuff just because. There must be a reason that we're here. And it's, it's, it's awful uncomfortable, and it, I, I can think of a few other places I'd rather be, but Lord, you have us here for a reason, so use us. Open a door for us. It says they were praying. It says they were praising. They were worshiping God. Praising, worshiping. And it says that other prisoners were listening. Now it's interesting too when we understand that word that's used there for listening. It doesn't mean that they were listening because there was nothing else on. It doesn't mean that it's just because the, the noise was in the air. It means to listen intently. They were paying attention to what was being sung. And it tells us they were singing hymns. They were singing praise. And again, it doesn't tell us what songs, but I got a feeling it was more along the lines of what we sang at the beginning, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah. I got a feeling it was much more like that than swing low, sweet chariot. And it says that the other prisoners were listening, they heard. They were, they, were, they were drawn in to what they were hearing. And guys, what does this mean for us? Well, here it is. Everywhere we go, every place that we go, guys, we are surrounded by prisoners. And they're listening. We are surrounded by those who are in slavery to sin and death. We are surrounded by those who are prisoners of the enemy on their way to an eternity in hell and they are listening. My question is, what are they hearing? The, the person in the cubicle next to you at work who's lost, what is he hearing from your cube? Your neighbor, now that the weather's nice and your windows are open, what are they hearing? Paul will later write back to the church here in Philippi. He will write this in Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom all you appear as lights in the world. Now, I'm not stretching, I don't believe at all, by inserting at the beginning, do all things without grumbling and disputing and with prayer and praise, because I can support that with other scripture if you want. See me after the service. But do all things without grumbling and disputing with prayer and praise so that you will be lights in this dark world. The prisoners, it says, were listening. Again, intently and there's some that, you know, there's other forms of that word in the Greek that mean, that, that mean with delight. 
they were listening. Something was different about this. They knew what happened. They knew why they were in there. They knew what was going on. And instead of being like everybody else, grumbling and complaining, taking their cups and, you know, whatever it is, they're singing praises. They're worshiping. So what's going on down there? I think it's interesting, too, that that when the earthquake happens and the doors fly open and all the shackles come off, it wasn't just in Paul and Silas's cell. It says that all of them. Paul says, we are all here. None of them left. Man, God's doing something. <laughs> this earthquake takes place. One of the one of the commentaries I read, I like this. It said that the earthquake happened because God was up in heaven tapping his foot to the praise music. <laughs> but the jailer, notice, the one who took them into this place, fastened their legs in these stocks, then went out, heard the praise, fell asleep to the praise music, woken up by the earthquake, sees what's going on. His reaction, it tells us he takes a sword. He's going to kill himself. Why? Because Roman law said as a guard... If the one that is given to you to, to keep in prison escapes, you pay his penalty. So no doubt in a prison like that, there's probably somebody in there facing capital punishment that if he got away, you're going to take their punishment. So he's probably thinking, I'm going to just avoid the whole trial, all of the stuff. I know where it's going. I'm going to kill myself. Paul cries out and says, don't do it. We're all here. None of us have left. He saves him first physically, but then he moves on to what really matters. Again, Paul understands the real prisoner in this story is the jailer, not Paul. Paul's free. He's a prisoner to one. He's a prisoner to Jesus. He calls himself that a couple of times. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, but he's free. The real prisoner is the jailer. And notice, he understands that. He comes to that realization. The jailer himself says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. His household wasn't saved because he believed in Jesus. His whole household was saved because they all believed in Jesus. This man went from absolute despair, ready to kill himself, to joy unspeakable because of Jesus. Jesus is the answer, guys. Jesus is the answer. It says that they spoke the word of the Lord to them. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus, but 
What does that mean? What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? And we, picture, we put this together and we see this picture as it unfolds. And it's important as Christians, we, all, we can never hear it enough what it means to believe in Jesus, even though as Christians we have placed our faith in Jesus. We understand it totally. But to hear it again and to be reminded of that again, and also in when we share with others, it's important that we share what it means to believe in Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never placed placed your faith and trust in him. We're going to look at something today that Paul will later write to the church in Rome. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? What are we placing our faith in? Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at this real quickly, but these it's important again to t- to look at this picture. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the first place everybody needs to come. The jailer had reached this point. When he said, what must I do to be saved, he realized he needed to be saved. He realized that when he holds himself up against a holy and righteous and perfect God, he falls short. No flesh can be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He understands that now. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now there's the section there, and again, I encourage you to go through it again and again later, but here's netting it out. It speaks of righteousness. God's righteousness. God is holy. He is just. He is perfect. He is righteous. Righteousness that he has is righteousness that is required of all of us. Righteousness means to be absolutely, totally, 100% innocent and blameless. Not one charge against you. Not one. Absolutely perfect. That's the requirement. That's his standard. It doesn't matter what the world says. That's what God says. And it tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. How far short? It doesn't matter. We've all fallen short. Imagine that God's glory is on the other side of this river of molten lava. And all of us are going to try to jump over the river. It doesn't matter if I make it nine-tenths of the way and you only make it halfway. We're both in the river of lava. We're both dead. doesn't matter how far short. The world wants to compare. Well, I'm better than that guy or I haven't done that or whatever. None of that matters. It's a holy, righteous, perfect standard of righteousness, the righteousness of God. 
But that's where, notice that, and that's why this is so important. Everybody has to come to that realization. But then it says, being justified in verse 24. Justified means to be declared righteous. To be declared absolutely, totally, 100% blameless. It's a gift. The case dismissed. Not guilty. And it comes through redemption. A price had to be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it's not just any blood. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. God himself stepping out of heaven, becoming one of us, living a perfect, sinless life, and then exchanging that life on the cross for us, paying our debt, a debt that we can't pay. He paid it in full. And that allows him in verse 26 to be both just, holy, righteous, perfect. A holy, righteous God can't just say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen. He can't. Sin has to be paid for if he's going to be just. But he's also the justifier, the one who paid the penalty for you and for me. Paid the penalty for all. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confessing Jesus is Lord, making him Lord of your life, understanding he paid the entire sin debt for you. You surrender to him completely, believing that God raised him from the dead because without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. The resurrection proves that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. So if you're here today and you've never taken that step, you need to be like the jailer was in our story. First, you need to recognize that something needs to be done, that you're a sinner like everybody else, and that something needs to be done, but then you need to realize it's already been all done. Jesus did it. So you need to surrender your life to him. Invite him into your life to be your Lord and Savior. You have to do that. That is your responsibility. That is your part. Invite him into your life. And I want to do that in just again in just a second, but we have to finish up back in chapter 16 of Acts. I want to give you an opportunity to pray in just a moment, but there's an important point we can't miss as we close up. Verse 35, now when day came. So in the evening, about midnight, that's when this all takes place. The earthquake happens. After, between earthquake and verse 35, the jailer takes them home after he be, and, and washes their wounds. He feeds them. They rejoice. They praise the Lord together. He's baptized with his whole family. I mean, this is quite a night. But sometime in the morning, they go back to the prison. And verse 35 says, Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. The Greek there is no way Jose. But let them come themselves and bring us out. 
The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. Here's the deal. The way Paul and Silas were treated the previous day that we looked at was illegal. It was illegal to treat a Roman citizen that way. You could treat a Jew that way all day long, but not if they're a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had special rights. Both Paul and Silas are Romans. So now they're like, uh-oh. And they came and appealed to them, and when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, first of all, Paul is not doing this to be vindictive. He's, he's doing this to make a point to them that this, this gathering, this church that we have going on over here, <laughs> kind of as protection for them, Kind of reminding them that they stepped way over a line. But the more important point that I want to make is remember everything that Paul and Silas went through. All Paul had to do the day before to stop it is say, I'm a Roman citizen, and it would have stopped. That's all he had to do. As soon as they drug him into the, in front of the magistrates, as soon as the crowd started to get in an uproar, all he had to do was say, I am a Roman citizen, and it would have stopped. They, would have maybe, they had to take him through trial and all that sort of stuff, but what happened the day before, it would have stopped. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Again, because Paul understands something that we all need to understand. That God is doing something way bigger than us. He is involved and he is moving and he is doing things that are far beyond our little sphere of understanding. And somewhere in that process, as it laid out the day before, it had to cross Paul's mind to say, I'm a Roman. But Jesus said, and you're mine, so keep your mouth closed because I have something I want to do. Because Paul understood something's way bigger. Paul goes through all of this. Look what happened. An entire household got saved. An entire prison block heard the gospel message. We don't know how many of them got saved. And I'm challenged Myself, and I want to challenge you with this. When God has us in situations that we don't understand, that we don't necessarily like, that might be painful, is our first response to look for a way out? Or is our first response, Lord, do you have me here for a reason? Is there something bigger than me you want to accomplish in all of this. I think that if we allow God to do that work in us and through us, again, just like, just like Peter told us before, we will be blessed beyond, beyond our understanding. I guess bottom line it comes down to do we trust the Lord or don't we? Are we going to let him do as he pleases? There's something to leave you with. <laughs> would, you, would you stand with me?
Let's pray, and we're going to worship the Lord with a couple of songs as we prepare our hearts for communion. After we've sung a couple songs, the ushers are going to come forward and then distribute the elements for communion. And when the trays go by, please remember to grab both cups. The bread's in the bottom cup, the juice is in the top cup. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you for, again, your word and the fact that we know it is alive and it is active and it speaks directly to us. It, Lord, no doubt has met every one of us at some point or perhaps in many points today. Lord, we want to be people of prayer, knowing that the enemy knows how powerful prayer is and is going to come against us. Lord, we want to be those that are sold out to you in prayer, that we would go where you lead us, that we would be intent on listening to what it is that you have for us. And Lord, regardless of what we face and where you lead us and where you take us, Lord, let prayer and praise be on our lips so that those who are in bondage, who are in, in slavery to sin around us, Lord, would hear, would know that we are different, would ask why. If you're here today and you have never invited Jesus to be Lord of your life, perhaps you've been to church your whole life, you maybe even prayed before, you maybe you've done it, but you realize, you recognize right now because the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart that you've never truly, fully surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never given your life over to Him. First, you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner. You need to acknowledge your desperate need for a savior and then you just go before Jesus in your heart and you say Jesus I know I'm a sinner I know that my life is not pleasing to you I know I fall short of your glory and your righteousness and I need a savior Jesus I believe that you died to save me I believe that you took the full penalty of my sin upon yourself. So right now, I invite you to come into my life. Forgive me of all of my sins. And Jesus, I want to make you Lord now. I want to follow you from this point on. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that work in all of us. We worship you now because you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.